Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. But Article 14 deals with the issue of cooperation. And as we will note this evening in our study, the Baptist faith and message may be the only Baptist confession that has a statement on cooperation. And uh, I think it will be helpful for us to go through it because it's amazing to me how many people do not understand our ecclesiology. They don't understand how we function. They don't understand lines of authority and accountability. And uh, we are significantly different than many, many denominations. In fact, to speak correctly, uh, we're not a denomination. We are a convention of churches. And there's a significant difference between, for example, the structure of Presbyterianism, uh, Methodism, Episcopalianism, Lutheranism, Catholicism, and then someone like Baptist. Uh, We are radically different in the way we relate to one another. And so the article on cooperation highlights this, and uh, hopefully it will be instructive for us this evening. But look at the article on page one. Christ's people should, as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions as may best secure cooperation for the great objects of the kingdom of God. Such organizations, now you ought to mark this statement, such organizations have no authority over one another or over the churches. In other words, there is no association, state convention, or national convention that has any authority over Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. We choose to cooperate with one, two, three, or none of those, uh, but it's voluntary on our end and above us. In fact, the way we often say it is the highest seat of authority in the Baptist Church is the Baptist Church. And I speak in the singular, the local Baptist Church is its own authority under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So such organizations, associations, conventions have no authority over one another or over the churches. They are voluntary and advisory bodies designed to what? Elicit, combine, and direct the energies of our peoples in the most effective manner. Members of New Testament churches then should cooperate with one another in carrying forward what? The missionary educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. Cooperation is also desirable between the various Christian denominations when the end to be attained is itself justified. And when such cooperation involves no violation of conscience or compromise of loyalty to Christ and his word as revealed in the New Testament. And I can immediately think of a couple that would be very relevant to this particular part of the country. Uh, Think in terms of the ministry of Billy Graham. In fact, Dr. Graham in many ways pioneered, and he is a Southern Baptist, by the way, pioneered uh, cooperation across denominational lines for the purpose of uh, the propagation of the gospel. So, for example, when we lived in Louisville and the Billy Graham, uh, uh, they don't like to use the word crusade any longer, but when the Billy Graham crusade came there, uh, there was a cooperative effort among all sorts of denominations, including even Roman Catholics, uh, which Dr. Graham has received significant criticisms over the years, but they came together to form churches, no, but to seek to propagate the gospel among the lost. Think of Samaritan Purse uh, under the leadership of Franklin Graham. Again, this is an interdenominational, cross-denominational ministry where folks can come together and work for the purpose of assisting the poor around the world as well as providing an avenue for the sharing 
uh, of the gospel. And I could think of some other organizations where we as Baptists have felt comfortable in joining hands with them uh, to a certain level and to a certain degree. But again, if it causes a violation of conscience, then don't do it. And if it causes a compromise of loyalty either to Christ or his word, then we should not participate. Now, as I walk through all the scriptures of Article 14, just to be honest with you, I didn't think any of them fit. <laughs> I didn't think of one of them really contextually uh, in its particular location in scripture really fits the idea of promoting cooperation. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do I think cooperation is implied in the scriptures? Absolutely. But do I think there is an explicit statement that calls multiple churches to come together that commands, that's a better idea, that commands multiple churches to come together? No. I don't, I don't find that at all. But I did think Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 would give us a general basis for cooperation. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility or lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And, and I would argue that though that is primarily concerned with a local church, I would by no means want to limit it to a local church. I believe that God indeed would expect us to look out for the interest of other brothers and sisters in Raleigh, in North Carolina, in North America, and around the world. I believe he indeed would expect us to do something like that. Indeed, that would be at the essence of verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so with that then as a good scriptural foundation, and having read the article, let's examine exactly what is going on in this article on cooperation. Now I'll move through it pretty quickly, slow down in a couple of places. While Baptists began cooperating with other like-minded Baptist churches for kingdom causes in the 17th century when Baptist churches were founded, cooperation became the defining watchword for Southern Baptists in the 20th century. In fact, it continues to be, for many, the defining uh, idea and the defining word. Cooperation then provides the fundamental reason for the unique organizational life of Southern Baptists. Indeed, I mentioned this a moment ago. It may be that Southern Baptists alone have an article of cooperation in their doctrinal statement. Well, what does the New Testament say about the topic of cooperation? Well, not a lot in direct statements. What we have are more along the lines of spiritual Implications, And I make three quick observations here. First, the churches at Antioch and Jerusalem cooperated in a doctrinal question about the nature of the gospel in Acts chapter 15. Second, Paul encouraged the Macedonian churches to collect a financial offering for the saints in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For Paul, the offering demonstrated the unity of the one gospel for both Jews and Greeks. And third... Paul received financial gifts from the church at Philippi to further the gospel. And he also anticipated help from the church at Rome on his way to Spain, uh, Romans 15, verse 24. Thus, the New Testament speaks of cooperative partnerships in doctrine, in benevolence ministry, and also in the extension of the gospel. In other words, this is at the very heart of why we have an international mission board, why we have over 5,000 missionaries scattered around the world to take the gospel to the unreached peoples and the uh, peoples in need of hearing the gospel message. Mark Rafel, who teaches at the Baptist College of Florida, notes that the Baptist faith and message identifies the rationale for cooperation, defines the nature of cooperation, and provides limits to cooperation as well. And so, again, several observations. First, the BFNM identifies the missionary mandate of the kingdom of God as the rationale for cooperation. And I would argue that our cooperation in international missions is probably as much as anything the glue that holds us together. I would argue that in the best case scenario, on the one hand, we're held together by the glue of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And on the other hand, we're held together by the glue of our passion for missions, both in North America and around the world. And I think holding those two things together is the glue that will keep us together 
into the 21st century. But throughout their history, Baptists have formed associations and conventions for the great objects of the kingdom. In other words, as it promotes the kingdom, we see these as good things. Thus, early Baptists realized that the kingdom mandate necessitated cooperative ventures beyond the capability of a single local church. The Brocks are here uh, this evening. Uh, they're serving over uh, in uh, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the fact of the matter is, this church probably uh, could put together a strategy, marshal resources, and fund them to, to send them there. So we could send two, maybe four, maybe if we really, you know, kind of adjusted our budget and streamlined some things, we get maybe six to eight that we got over there, but we wouldn't be able to send 5,000. Uh, we would be limited in what we are able to do. And so because we come together in this kind of a way, we're able to do more. In fact, a common mantra, and it's a good one, uh, among Southern Baptists is we can do more together than we could ever do apart. And I believe that to be absolutely the case. In fact, Southeastern Seminary is a result of our doing more together than we could ever do apart. Thus, by the mid-17th century, associations became an accepted organizational feature of English Baptists serving the purposes of fellowship, clarification of Baptist doctrine and practices, mutual counsel, evangelism, and defense of Baptists against the charges of the established church in England. And in the early days of the Baptists in England, they had a very hard and a very difficult time against the state-ordained church. But Southern Baptists have favored a, listen now and look at it, have favored a convention model supporting multiple missionary and benevolent causes. The convention model allows for accountability to the churches. In other words, the local association, which I just have to be careful here, but I'm going to state what I think anyway. I'm underwhelmed with the Raleigh Baptist Association, and I'm actually quite grateful that we have virtually no uh, part in them because they're led by a person who's basically a heretic. And I know this is being taped. I'll say it again. He is basically a heretic and does not plant churches, does not promote the gospel, does not believe in biblical authority. And so I'm quite satisfied that we have virtually no cooperative uh, engagement with our local association. But we are very active in our state convention and we are super active in the National Southern Baptist Convention. And the, the, the genius of the whole thing is this. We can, as this particular church, participate in all three, two of the three, one of the three, or none of the three. It is our call, our choice as a local church to determine with whom we will cooperate and partner and with whom we will not cooperate and partner as well. But the key statement, again, is the convention model allows for accountability to the churches. The local association should serve the churches. The state convention should serve the churches. The, the national entity, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, should be a servant to the churches. Sometimes I think we get that flipped on its head, and we think that you guys are there to serve us, and that is not the model of Baptist ecclesiology, and that's a wrong understanding of why our convention is structured in the way that it is. The 1931 SBC annual meeting defined then by limitation the nature of the convention. This next statement is very helpful. Churches, not individuals. Associations are mission societies elect, now note this, messengers, not delegates to the annual SBC meeting that is now held in June of each year. And this is for free. Church gives up to $2,500 a year. They can send 10 messengers. They give $2.5 million. They can send 10 messengers. And those messengers have the right to vote their conscience. They're not sent by the church with the dictates, you must vote this way or that way. No, each messenger, uh, following our uh, ecclesiology of, um, of soul competency, and uh, our autonomy, each messenger is able to vote their own conscience when we come together for our annual meeting. Thus, note this statement, the modern SBC is not a church. Rather, the Southern Baptist Convention is a convention of churches. I always find it comical when a secular newspaper or media person will contact us and say, well, I want to talk to you about the Southern Baptist Convention Church or the Southern Baptist Church. 
And I will have to say to them, no such thing exists. There is no Southern Baptist Church like there is a United Methodist Church. There are Southern Baptist churches, almost 45,000 of them. But there is no Southern Baptist Church. That is a improper nomenclature to identify who we are and how we are structured. Second, the BFNM recognizes the voluntary principle among Baptists as defining the nature of cooperation. The voluntary principle rules out an organic unity as well as a hierarchy outside the local church. For example, the uh, current president of the Southern Baptist Convention is Johnny Hunt, dear friend of this church, dear friend to me. What authority does Dr. Hunt have over this church? Answer, zero. Zero. You say, but he is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is correct. And he has only authority in one church, and that is the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, where he is the pastor. And so there is no hierarchy above the local church. And again, I believe that's thoroughly biblical, and that is one of the reasons then I maintain my membership in a Baptist church. So it rules out an organic unity. It rules out a hierarchy outside the local church. Baptists then affirm that all relationships are voluntary. We voluntarily choose to join or not join the local association. We voluntarily choose to join or not join the state convention. We voluntarily choose to join or not join the National Southern Baptist Convention. Thus, as voluntary groups, associations, state conventions, and the SBC possess no authority over the local church or over each other. These voluntary groups exist for the sole purpose, then, quote, to elicit, combine, and direct the energies of our people, a statement that mirrors the original 1845 purpose statement when the SBC was formed in Augusta, Georgia, actually on the date of May the 20th. Further, these voluntary relationships serve as advisory functions. With full recognition, then, of the autonomy of the local church, Local Baptist churches may humbly seek out advice on key issues from sister churches. For that matter, they can seek out advice from their local association, their state convention, from a national convention, from a national entity. But all of that is voluntary, and all of that is to be initiated from within a local church. It would be inappropriate for an associational uh, leader, a director of, minis- uh, of missions, uh, the state exec, it would be inappropriate for me to try to stick my nose into a church's local be, uh, doings without them inviting me and asking me to come in. Even though I may be in the office of a, of a seminary president, I have no authority and actually have no right to lend a voice to any church unless they invite me and ask me to come in and to do so. Third, the FNM provides limits to cooperation with other denominations. It establishes two limitations to interdenominational cooperation. First, the end or purpose of the interdenominational cooperation must be justifiable. For example, throughout much of the 20th century, certain groups, notably the National Council of Churches, the NCC, espoused the goal of ecumenicalism, that is, the organic unity of all churches. In other words, the National Council of Churches would desire that all the churches in America would be under their particular umbrella. Not surprisingly, Southern Baptists have rejected over and over an invitation for membership within the National Council of Churches, and for at least two reasons. First, the SBC is not a church or a denomination. It is a voluntary convention of churches as such. The SBC cannot direct the local churches to join the National Council of Churches. Second, organic unity of churches means the loss of core values of what it means to be a Baptist. Thus, Southern Baptists rejected the invitation of the NCC because the end was not justifiable and membership would violate our conscience. Thus, the local church must make a decision about cooperation with other denominations, and a local church must measure the goal in light of the core essentials of the gospel. Now, with that then, a few selected issues for your consideration. First, since the 1600s, Baptists have formed associations. 
An association is a group of churches that voluntarily join together for fellowship, encouragement, and missions. Churches are the members of the associations, but the association does not rule its member churches. And so usually these uh, associations have been um, uh, grouped uh, geographically. But the fact of the matter is, uh, given the way the world works today, given the fact that there are 1,200 uh, Baptist associations in the SBC, given the fact that some of them are not worth shooting, uh, there is now among our folks a desire in many cases to come together across geographical limitations. I know, for example, some brothers in the Triangle area that have no interest in being involved in their particular local geographical association, but they are interested in affinity-type associations where brothers and sisters would come together or churches would come together that have common theological convictions, common goals for church planning, common strategies and commitments to international missions. And so there is today, not just in this area, but in different parts of America, folks coming together as associations that are not uh, defined geographically. You say, well, why were they defined geographically? Well, it makes all the sense in the world. When associations were first uh, created, we were in a horse and buggy day. And so it made sense that you had churches grouped together by geographical uh, parameters. But it makes it doesn't make that much sense anymore. And furthermore, as I said, some of the associations out there really just are not worth participating in. I wish I could say no. Actually, we've got 1,200 wonderful, fantastic church planning, missionary-minded associations. But that would be a lie. That would just be a lie. And so, again, our church has chosen not to be very active in the Raleigh Baptist Association. And for that, I commend our pastor, and I am eternally grateful. Churches then may also choose to form a convention. In the United States, Southern Baptist churches have organized both state conventions. There is a North Carolina Baptist Convention and a national body, the Southern Baptist Convention. In 2000, the SBC, though, celebrated what is known as the Cooperative Program at 75th Anniversary. This program was adopted in 1925 at the SBC annual meeting with E.Y. Mullins, president of Southern Seminary, moderating also as president of the SBC. Now, this next paragraph is very, very, very important. Under the cooperative program, each church decides to send a certain percentage or amount of its undesignated income to the cooperative program. All right. These funds, then, are sent where? To the state convention, normally, with an approved percentage being retained for the state convention's use, and the remainder sent on to the treasurer of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville to be dispersed among the national entities such as the IMB, International Mission Board, NAM, the North American Mission Board, and your six seminaries, which include Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, again, I can stay here a long time, share a lot of information, probably tick a bunch of you off, and so I'll just be cautious, careful, and then move on. Uh, the fact of the matter is, um, for every dollar that this church sends on to the cooperative program, you say, where do we send it? Over to Carrie. Uh, Carrie gets the money. They get a dollar. You say, well, how much do they send to the IMB? Well, let me back up before I get there. For every dollar we send to Carrie... North Carolina Baptists right now keep, unless they've changed, they're in the process of moving it up. So I want to give credit to where credit is due. But ballpark, we keep 67 cents of every dollar in North Carolina. 67 cents of every dollar stays in North Carolina. You say, well, where does the other 33 cents go? Well, it goes to Nashville. All right. How much of that goes to the International Mission Board? 16.5 cents. They get 50% of all the money that ever gets to Nashville. That's why in recent days, there have been some folks who have been saying, well, the fact of the matter is, for every dollar you give to the cooperative program, almost 75 to 80% gets to missions. That is not true. That is a lie. Because most of it stays in the States. Some states keep as much as 80%, 80 cents on the dollar in their state. There are only two states 
that even approach a 50-50 split, which, by the way, was the goal that was established in 1925 when the cooperative program was created. And uh, those two states happened to be the new conservative convention in Virginia and the new conservative convention in Texas. And this is a big issue because uh, most folks don't know this. Now, I guarantee you, most of you didn't know this. And when you begin to think, wait, 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 for every dollar we send to the cooperative program, like only 16 and a half cents ever gets to the International Mission Board. I don't like that. I don't like it either. And so there's a movement within our convention to try to change that. Uh, as you can imagine, some people find that to be something they wish to resist with very strong opposition. But the fact is, you don't have to give to the state convention and carry you can give your money straight to Nashville and bypass the state convention. And it still counts uh, in terms of being able to send messengers for the annual convention. But it doesn't count in terms of what would be reported in a book somewhere as cooperative program giving. Now, again, for most of you, you don't give a rip. You could care less. I don't read the book. I don't even know where the book is. I don't even know what book you're talking about. And so I don't care. What I'd like to do is see more monies going to church planning, international missions, North American missions. And your church is very sympathetic to that which is why, again, I'm so grateful that we have such a strong, awesome Lottie Moon Christmas offering. By the way, that's different. You say, Lottie Moon, how much of that goes to international missions? 100%. Every penny that's given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes directly to Richmond, Virginia. Every penny of Annie Armstrong goes directly to Atlanta, Georgia. So through those two mission offerings, all of that goes to those mission agencies. That's why, again, for example... The International Mission Board's budget, and I'll move on. Their uh, Lottie Moon offering last year, finally, by the end of the year, came in at about $134 million. Cooperative program last year came in, national cooperative program, uh, right at $200 million, So that means they got another $100 million. So last year, the International Mission Board received about 234 to $235 million for their operation of 5,500 missionaries around the world. 135 from Lottie Moon and another 100 through the cooperative program. That is the monies that ever got out of these state conventions and territories. So it's an interesting process. You ought to be informed about it. Uh, we need to be aware of where God's money goes. And again, I'm grateful for the way our church pursues these particular issues. Now, you say, well, you, you seem to be down the cooperative program. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of the cooperative program. Because half of Southeastern's operating budget comes from the cooperative program. Uh, so I'm not down on it. I just think it needs to be tweaked. I think it needs to be adjusted. I think it needs to be um, brought into the 21st century, and that's another issue for another day. But final paragraph in this section. The cooperative program was a major step forward for Southern Baptist, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And we are, by the way, the envy of virtually every other denomination in America because of the way it works. It provided more funds for Baptist institutions and agencies. It also made systematic budgeting possible. Thus, the support of our six seminaries uh, received makes it possible for students to study at a modest cost compared to independent seminaries. Just an example. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School has a like uh, theological commitment and conviction, as do we. Uh, wonderful, well-trained faculty at that school in Chicago. If you were to choose to come to Southeastern Seminary as a Southern Baptist and study, right now our tuition is $190 a semester hour. That's what it would cost you to come to Southeastern without any scholarship assistance. $190 a semester hour. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School today, it's over $800 a semester hour. Most of our graduates graduate with no debt. Almost all their graduates graduate with massive debt, which means they don't go to the mission field because they can't afford to go to the mission field, which means they have to take jobs to pay off their debt, which means in many, many, many cases, 10 years down the road, they're not in ministry because they're smart people. They've taken good-paying jobs to pay off their debt. Good-paying jobs usually become great-paying jobs, and the next thing you know, you're trapped into a financial, materialistic lifestyle that you're accustomed and comfortable with, and you can't break out of it. And so there's a missiological strategy as to why we try to keep tuition where we do, and if it were not for the cooperative program, we would not be able to provide a great education 
at the best bargain basement price in the world. And so for that, we can be very, very, very grateful. All right? Shift gears now. Article 15, the Christian and the social order. Great statement here. Really, really well written and was significantly um, revised uh, given current trends in moral behavior by the 2000 statement. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. So I'm very grateful that the statement on the social order is grounded as it ought to be in the gospel and the doctrine of regeneration. In the spirit of Christ, then, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should also work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. I love the next statement that was added. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. Every Christian then should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, then Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. I'll give a quick example to make that point. Could I work with a Roman Catholic in the pro-life movement? Absolutely. In fact, I'll make it even more stark. Could I work with a Mormon in the pro-life movement? I certainly could. I'll go a step further. Could I work with a Muslim in the pro-life movement? Yes. Anybody that's pro-life when it comes to trying to pass pro-life legislation, hey, I'm on that team. I'm on that team for that issue and that issue alone. Can I plant churches with all those people I just mentioned? No. No, I, I can't. I'm not sure any of them are saved. The, the closest would be the, the Catholic. And, you know, I'm not sure. I need to sit down and talk with him. If he thinks his baptism as an infant saved him, then he's lost. He's not believed the gospel. And I know that Mormons haven't believed the gospel. And I know that Muslims have not believed the gospel. And so when it comes to the gospel, no. When it comes to opposing abortion, yes, I can work with them on that kind of moral issue. And that's what that last statement is really trying to get at. Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any cause, but being careful not to compromise loyalty to Christ and his truth. All right, turn over, if you note, then after that, the key text on the Christian and the social order. I won't hit all of them, but Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Matthew five thirteen through 16, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they hide a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Drop down to James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Number one, visit orphans. Number two, visit widows in their trouble. And number three, keep oneself unspotted from the world. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. All right? So with that, then, is kind of a uh, biblical foundation drawing upon the particular article on uh, the Christian and the social order. Let's jump into this. And note, first of all, I follow my friend Mark Rafel here. Five historic models provide guidance 
into the issue of the Christian and the social order. We'll note these very quickly. In other words, five different perspectives are out there on how do we relate to the government? How do we relate to culture? How do we relate to the moral issues of the world? All right, number one, selective Christians withdrew from the social order. The first monks emerged in the deserts of Egypt. Desiring to remain unstained by the worldly social order, these hermetic monks found that removal from the social order did not always equal personal purity. In Western Europe, selective Christians applied the withdrawal strategy through the means of gathered communities. We call these monasteries, and we call these convents. And so you had in the medieval period a great uh, emphasis upon uh, being a holy man or a holy woman. If you were truly, genuinely sold out to Christ, then you left the world and you went to a monastery or you went to a convent and you withdrew from the world. So the first approach is the withdrawal model from the social order. Second, some Christians advocated a bifurcated realm. That is, they separate Christian discipleship on one hand and engagement of the social world on the other. For example, descendants of the Anabaptist tradition, such as the Amish and the Mennonites, Avoid engagement with the social order. For example, a faithful Mennonite will not serve in public office. Uh, a good Amish will not ride in an automobile, but they will ride in a horse and a buggy. I was actually over in Maryland a few weeks ago and saw this again uh, from a very large Amish community in that particular area. Third, some Christians elevated what has been called the social gospel, propagated by the Baptist theologian Walter Rousingbush. Uh, respected Baptist theologian Millard Erickson defines the liberal Protestant social gospel. I like all four of those words. The liberal Protestant social gospel as follows. It is a tendency to replace the gospel of regeneration with an emphasis on transformation of society through alteration of its structures. Chase this a long time, too, but just one example the former pastor of Barack Obama is a black liberationist theologian and pastor. He believes the great need in America is not the transformation. He would not be, I don't think, against this, I don't think, but the great need is not the changing of human hearts as much as it is the changing of social, political structures that oppress, uh, in particular, minorities. Uh, and so that is what needs to be changed. What, what the problem is not, here's the easy way to do it. The problem is not in here. The problem is out there. So we need to work out there and not worry so much about in here. And so most of those that are very committed to the social gospel are very, very, very active in the political process. All right. And again, do I think we should be involved in the political process? Absolutely. Do I think it should be our primary focus and emphasis? Absolutely not. Fourth, some Christians united the Christian faith and the social order. For much of European history, what could be called and what was called Christendom, an impure union of society and Christianity dominated culture. Even today, the state church in Germany is the Lutheran church. The state church in England is the Anglican church. The state church in Spain is the Catholic Church. And during the medieval period leading up into the Reformation, the, the state and the church were unfortunately united in this unholy matrimony that only produced rampant uh, immorality as well as churches filled uh, with unregenerate people. Fifth, for the most part, Baptists have favored a model that could be called the redemptive prophetic witness to the culture. Through the transformation of individuals, through faith in Christ, the social order can be both confronted and redeemed. However, we have a very definite theology here. Full redemption, of course, must and will await the return of Christ and the full establishment of His kingdom. In other words... Do I think America was founded as a Christian nation? No, I don't. And history proves it wasn't. Do I think that we'll ever become a Christian nation? No, we won't. Will we have a Christian element in it? I certainly hope so. 
And should the Christian element within this nation try to influence the political process, influence lawmaking, influence morality? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should be doing all of that and doing so with a great deal of energy and conviction. But should we deceive ourselves into thinking that we will actually usher in a utopian Christian society that is naive at best and probably blatantly unbiblical at worst. No, we realize that the full reigning of the kingdom of Christ will not take place until he comes again. But that doesn't mean I'm a pessimist. That doesn't mean I throw in the towel. Doesn't mean I quit voting and quit lobbying and quit being involved. No, I'm still going to do all of those things because I can always at least by my action, promote a little presence of the kingdom of God down here wherever I happen to be. Now, I believe that's what the Scriptures command us to do. We're to be what? Salt and light wherever it is that God locates us. Now, the BFNM details five principles then regarding how a Christian relates to the social order. First, rejecting union, purification, and withdrawal as well as the mere social gospel the BF&M calls upon all believers to impact the social order for Christ. In other words, to make the will of Christ supreme in our lives and in human society. Again, we're to be salt and we're to be light, Matthew 5. Second, rejecting the mere goal of societal transformation. The Baptist faith and message affirms the priority of individual transformation or conversion or regeneration. Thus, all human plans for societal betterment fail to account for the radical nature of the human sin problem. Human sin infects all societal relationships. The gospel, though, transforms individuals from citizens of the domain of sin to citizens of the kingdom of God. As more people enter the kingdom of God, society itself experiences a measure of transformative power. Thus, an emphasis upon the gospel without a concern for the social order renders the church without a voice in the public square. We have to address abortion. We have to address homosexuality. We have to address greed. We have to address racism and bigotry. If we don't, then we basically cut the knees off of the body of the gospel. No, at the same time, though, an emphasis on the transformation of the social order without the proclamation of the gospel leaves people lost and separated from God. I mean, we can pass all the laws that we possibly could uh, to overturn the evils of abortion, and we can be pro-life from coast to coast, and people will still die and go to hell without Christ. And so, do we fight for the rights of the unborn? Absolutely. But we recognize that ultimately the need is not to change the laws that we go after that, but the need is to change human hearts. Third, the BFNM enumerates numerous negative social sins which Christians individually and collectively should oppose. Racism, for example, rejects the dignity of human beings by prejudging individuals based on the color of their skin. It violates the nature of God. Because the Bible says God does not show partiality. Literally, in James 2.8, the lack of partiality means God does not receive a face. That is, God does not evaluate people based upon their external features. Indeed, the Old Testament prophets, particularly Amos, thundered against the sins of greed and selfishness. Greed led to perversion of justice for the poor. The Bible consistently details God's concern for the poor and the responsibility of believers to show compassion to the needy, I applaud our ministry to inner city Raleigh. I applaud the fact that several southeastern grads have gone into inner city Raleigh and into the inner city of Durham to plant churches right there in the midst of people who are absolutely being crushed by poverty. Here's their goal to get them out of poverty, not primarily. Their goal is to get the gospel to them, knowing that the gospel will have radical, life-altering effects on many, many levels. But we can get them all out of poverty. We can get them all in the middle class. And the Bible says, what did it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? So we have to keep things in proper perspective. Thus, in a social order permeated and saturated with false and destructive sexual ethics, 
The BFM encourages Christians to oppose adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We understand that God created sex for good purposes within the covenant of heterosexual marriage. And today at uh, the seminary, my friend Darren Patrick, who pastors the Journey Church in St. Louis, made the statement that he is absolutely convinced that the, the issue that is going to be the watershed for the next several decades is homosexuality. He said there's just no doubt about it. And as one who is pastoring a church in the uh, inner city, uh, that issue, he says, comes up again and again and again and again. And it was amazing to me. He told me, he said, you'd be, you'd be stunned at how many people come to our church, like our church, like the music, like the preaching, like the atmosphere. They go through new members class. And when it comes to our stand on certain moral issues, and in particular, homosexuality, you'd be amazed how many people hit the brakes and say, whoa, whoa, hold on now. Whoa. If I sign the church covenant, I'm saying that I believe this is sin and this is wrong. Yes, well, I can't sign that. And he says, we've lost a significant number of prospective church members who would not covenant with our church because of that particular issue. And I do agree with him. I think that in my lifetime, if God allows me to live another 18 to 20 years, I am absolutely convinced that uh, homosexual marriage will become the law of the land. So you're throwing in the towel? No. You're going to continue to oppose it? Yes. Try to keep... Yes. But you think we're going to lose? Yes. I think we lost a long time ago. And it's just a matter now of time. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that 20 years from now you come up and you knock my cane out from underneath me so I fall down. And then you help me back up and say, you're wrong, you idiot. It's 20 years later and it's not the law. And that'd be fine with me. That's one time, Brother Bill, I'll be happy to be wrong. So, we'll see. All right? So, we also realize that adultery violates the marriage covenant. And that the Bible consistently condemns homosexual activities unnaturally. It even calls it an abomination. Thus, pornography, to add to injury to insult, elicits and incites lustful attitudes and actions. And Jesus admonished drastic action to remove the source of sexual temptation. In fact, he said, if your eye offended, cut it out. If your hand offended, cut it off. I mean, better to go into heaven, into the kingdom lame or maimed than to go into hell whole. Fourth, the BFNM encourages Christians to defend the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. A really good statement. A functional view of humanity or a quality of life ethic. We're against that. Ignores clear biblical teaching. Humans are not defined by their functioning at a certain level. For example, the mentally challenged as well as a dependent senior adult manifests God's image And he or she manifests God's glory. Essence, you are made in the image of God, not function what I can do. Sanctity, every person is of eternal, inestimable value, not quality. Properly defines what it means to be human. Thus, humans possess a sacred essence created in the image of God. And by the way, if there is no God, then that argument falls flat on its face and we... We go down a different road. And unfortunately, uh, in our culture, there are many people that don't see the disconnect in their thinking between, oh, yeah, I believe in God, and I believe people are made in the image of God, but it's okay to abort them in their mother's womb. It's okay to kill them when they get old. If they don't have a really certain level of quality, of course, who decides what level of quality uh, permits you to hang around and what level of quality permits you to get the boot? You know, basically, we're now back to Mike makes right and whoever has the guns wins. And again, I fear that we may see things like that happen in our own lifetime. Fifth, the BFNM states that Christians should impact every area of social order with the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. Southern Baptists are not willing then to repeat the errors of turn-of-the-century social gospel Protestant liberalism. All attempts at social reformation are doomed to failure unless they are joined with the full-throttled preaching of a gospel that results in a new creation in Christ Jesus. I follow, as I close, my good friend Russ Moore at Southern Seminary. He just has a great way of saying it, so you'll enjoy it, but hopefully be convicted as well. Southern Baptists do not take a break from doctrine in order to address a few political matters. This article recognizes that these injustices are often themselves theological claims addressed not only to the world but also to members of our church. In our history, the local Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan 
And Russ, by the way, is from South Mississippi, so he knows of which he speaks. In our history, but for that matter, my grandfather was a member of the Klan. He died the year I was born, so he's been dead a long time, uh, 53 years. But my grandfather in Atlanta was a member of the Klan. Okay? Proud of that? No. It's shameful. I hope God gave him an extra whack upside the head when he got to heaven for that. But that's God's business, not mine. And he's dead anyway, so there's nothing I do about it. Anyway, the local grand wizard of the Klan was far too often a member in good standing of a local Southern Baptist church. And he was able to justify a hateful heart by assuring himself that black people aren't really made in the image of God. Today, the neighborhood parenthood counselor is all too willing to assure the scared pregnant teenager that the fetus within her womb isn't really a human life. It's just tissue. Gay rights slogans invariably include the theological assertion that God created some human beings with an irreversible same-sex attraction. That's what happened recently when Soul Force was on our campus. That's their particular way of understanding who they are. But when it comes to sexual morality, Southern Baptist youth groups may hear from their pastors that true love waits. But they also hear from their elected official, another voice that says, as long as no one is hurt, what harm is there in any and all sexual acts and expressions? This article seeks to remind Southern Baptists that a Christian worldview means more than just avoiding R-rated movies. You could be here tonight and say, you know what, Brother Danny? Never been to an R-rated movie in my life. And you still die and go to hell. You still die. I don't think that's the ticket to get you into the pearly gates, okay? Now, I'm not for going to see stuff that is sensual and all that. No, but I'm just saying, you, we have our, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't cuss. I don't get all ready. And by the way, I'm for all that. I'm just a morally good person. No, you're not. You're a hell-bound sinner apart from Jesus. In fact, you're a Pharisee. You're a self-righteous hypocrite, which may be even worse than the flagrant sinner who understands how wicked and evil they really are. No, believers in union with Christ will share his priorities. They will be angered by those mistreated by unjust court systems, Isaiah 11. They will oppose those who seek to snuff out the lives of the helpless, Psalm 72. They will stand against those who counsel sinners that there is no hope for them to change, John 8. And above all, they will warn the powers that be that all social unrighteousness will end when the kingdom of this world are crushed by the kingdom of our Christ. To join John the Apostle in Revelation 22, even so... Come and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. Uh, bless what we have listened to from your teaching, that we might be better servants of the Lord Jesus in all that we do. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.